From Central Sauce and the Fifth Element Podcast Network, this is In Search of Sauce, a celebration of the writers who are saving music journalism from death by clickbait. I'm Elliot Sang. I'm a a content creator and contributor at Central Sauce. With me, I have Ryan, a writer at Central Sauce, Squiggly and Football Paradise. Ryan, what's up? What you working on? Um, I'm good. I'm working on quite a bit, so give me a sec. Um, so, um, just this week, just fr- last Friday, uh, the new Puss in Boots movie came out in the UK, and I interviewed the director, uh, Joel Crawford, and the producer, Mark Swift, and that movie is pure chemo, baby. Go watch it. Right? Um, I also in, uh, interviewed the director of the Oscar-nominated film Turning Red, Domi Shi. Uh, I think that'll run around the time of the Oscars, so keep an eye out for that. Um, and tomorrow I'm interviewing the director of a film called Blind Willow Sleeping Woman, which is a, uh, an adaptation of um, short stories by Haruki Murakami. And uh, yeah, I'm interviewing him about that film. And I think that's it. <laughs> Wonderful. Brian is doing very well. Jashma, you are also an entrepreneur and writer, and you have got things going on, I am sure. <laughs> um, what do I have going on at the moment? I interviewed Curtis Water recently for Brown Girl Magazine, and that should be out soon, which is exciting. And... There's some other exciting things happening, like the amount of South Asian and East Asian representation on this year's Coachella lineup. So there might be exciting news about those things happening in the future. But that's it for me. I'm doing a lot of sitting in the sun and staying home. You guys have Excellent. sun? Well, yes, but it's not doing much work right now, uh, although it's a bit warmer today. Um, and I am Elliot. Uh, I have YouTube videos, so if you check out my channel with my name, you'll see I've got some content up about mental health stuff and capitalism stuff and, like, other dorky weird stuff. So thanks for uh, listening and not watching because I'm not ready to be watched today. Today we've got three awesome articles. Um, We've got Lil Yachty's Let's Start Here and the Case for Reinvention. We've got... Google AI tool creates music from written descriptions. And we've got Japanese breakfast is working the pain away. But we're going to start with the Google AI story. It comes from VOA News, Learning English, and Joshima brings it. And I'm fascinated to hear, Joshima, what led you to pick this story and what did you find interesting about it? Well, um, most of the pieces we pick are profiles and things that sort of dissect different songs, artists, moments in music. But I thought this was really interesting because I think it's really scary and both really fantastic. Um, I'm a big fan of democratizing access to the arts and tools needed to create art, i.e. the chat GPTs of the world. But I do think an entity that can compose in the way that the article outlines one of Google's new products might be able to poses like a very large threat to composers, music supervisors, and the entire world of sync, which has become one of the leading um, revenue opportunities for young underrepresented artists, artists of color, people from other countries. So um, if, if companies don't need them to make music anymore, how do they get paid? But I'm curious, what did you two think about the piece? Well, I suppose I'll go first. Um, I also have your concerns. I wonder how tenable um, a lot of things are going to be post-automation, post-AI invention that replaces it. Of course, I work in academia a little bit, not really, but a little bit, and I write, and ChatGPT's arrival as a potential outsourcing of writing assignments um, to an AI tool that writes it for you really has, um, has struck a chord, has struck a nerve within uh, the academic sphere and has brought us a lot of concerns because it's like, well, if students aren't writing, then what are they really learning? 
Um, and I think a similar thing happens with music. Uh, there's something especially spectacular that happens when musicians make music, like human musicians. And it's at the same time extremely fascinating to see a tool pop up and just be able to make a Tame Impala type beat. But even if for now we are pretty aware that there's going to be some things we can hear in the AI music that's not going to like, you know, cover itself in glory. Like it's not, there's going to be some stuff that we hear that's going to be like, this isn't good. Um, and similar things happen with ChatGPT and a lot of these other AI tools. But for it to be this advanced in this phase with these things just rolling out, I can only imagine in five years, 10 years, what these tools, tools are going to be able to produce consistently. And with that said, uh, you're right. I mean, sync um, and other different types of like music making things, maybe even in the music industry itself with like pop radio. Um, you know, we know that the roles of producers and songwriters are often highly overlooked. What if, you know, p teams for pop stars could just look past that part of the process and get AI to do that for them? It's, it's going to be a, a really interesting time as usual that sort of indicates that there's a type, a type of implosion going on, a type of implosion where things are advancing to a point that they've, they've advanced too far and, and certain things that have been the structures and the bedrocks of our music systems, our industries are possibly not going to be able to sustain. Like they might just not be able to handle some of these technological revolutions. And that's, um, that almost feels like it's coming in a lot of ways, but it's a bit unsettling to think of what may come afterward. Um, Ryan, what were your thoughts when you saw the piece? Yeah, I think Joshua mentioned being scared, and I don't think I'm scared more that I'm like in the acceptance stage of grief. <laughs> like, <laughs> I just think it's awful, and I don't have a lot of hope about it getting any better because, you know, I don't like AI and I wrote a whole piece on my Substack about like AI art and how like horrible that is um, and how like as a society, this kind of thing is born from us being like looking at people with talent and not just appreciating that they have talent, but kind of thinking, I want their talent to be mine or I'm jealous of their talent and I want a way of uh, appropriating their talent in some way. So, um, but obviously AI is useful. Like I literally just used Otter to transcribe an interview and that's AI and, you know, chat, was it chat GPT, right? That uh, could be really useful and time-saving um, for journalists and other writers. But we're not a society who just stops. <laughs> we're not a society who's like, oh, these are the good things. Let's just do those things. No, we, we, we do the bad things too and we go too far and we do it in the name of technolog technological pro uh, progress. Um, and if you ask like 18-year-old Ryan like about this and you show him this, he'd be like, oh, this is just sick, this is amazing. Like, uh, oh, it's all about the, the, the progression of science above everything. But um, Ryan now is like, oh... We're acting like artists are some upper class who need to be taken down a peg and who's like hoarding resources that need to be shared amongst everyone. It's not true. Artists are the people and this AI kind of stuff only goes to harm the people, the, the people who are trying to make a living off art, like something as simple as trying to have a job in an artistic industry. Um, but yeah, yeah. AI could be useful, but really the only people who are going to be benefiting off it in the long term are people who just don't want to pay real people to do things. Yeah, I think it's, I think a few things are really interesting about what you both said, but about this in general and something in the piece. A, I think that efficiency driven tools are usually only truly accessible and converted to a use case by people that generally have an exceptional amount of knowledge or access privilege on understanding how to use the efficiency as a tool, right? People make the argument that like 80% of the world has devices or smartphones, et cetera, et cetera. Knowledge is democratized because of the internet. I've said that before, but I don't think 
a mass amount of people in arts and music that may know how to play a live instrument by ear can necessarily understand off the bat how to use a tool to compose something and turn that into a revenue generating efficiency for them. The people doing that, like Ryan said, are likely going to be the people that have the money to pay someone for their skill. And so it's only really an efficiency for them. And the other part I find interesting is if some of these changes are inevitable, I wonder if a way to stop history from repeating itself is to acknowledge that we as a society can run checks and balances on the creators of these tools and how they're executed once they become public. Google's tool is not public yet, but I do think something really interesting would be what does it look like for inbuilt union type structures to exist? Like maybe when someone makes a film and it's really independent and isn't funded, the score is created by something that might be AI. But then when the film gets accepted by a streaming service or funded, then at least 80% of the score needs to be made by humans versus machines. I wonder if there's a world in which that'll become the way that we start sanctioning, um, respecting someone's right to inefficiency and low cost tool, but also being like, you can't hemorrhage this industry. There has to be some type of standards here. So I wonder if that's a thing. It's also really concerning that the article talks about the fact that they're acknowledging that their test database in this composition tool may have issues with cultural appropriation because I think there are so many things between created a tool and needing to worry about if it's going to be engaging in cultural appropriation that are equally as alarming as cultural appropriation. But if they're already at the point where that's the one they're thinking about, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, it really kind of, um, it rings alarm bells when things like cultural appropriation are like quickly acknowledged by gigantic corporations that are building tools to replace workers in, in fields. Because it's like, well, I don't know if the spirit of the of that criticism is really, is really, really being met anymore. Um, the, the whole point, you know, when it comes to our discussions of cultural issues like these is to acknowledge that there are underprivileged communities, not even so much underprivileged, but underpowered, marginalized communities that have all these barriers to having any type of good, survivable life and are trying to break into different industries and are being met with all these different um, microaggressions, macroaggressions, barriers, glass ceilings, violence. And so for something to be uh, a tool that ostensibly could shut out a lot of people from different cultures and different backgrounds who don't have a particular amount of access or money. And then for it to be like, but, you know, we're going to try to make sure that the, the Chinese music we put in here is accurate. It's like, I, I don't know. If, I don't know if I'm particularly worried about that part. I don't know if that's going to save the that's going to save the, 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 the reality of the issue. And so this is where, you know, things like unionizing, like Joshua talked about, or things, you know, conversations, more than conversations, even just just straight up movements, to, um, you know, uh, try to concentrate power, some amount of power, back into the hands of people who who need a place in society, who need to be able to do their work, and who need to have their value respected, um, is is going to be uh, is going to be prevalent, is going to be needed, um, and additionally, I think. I wonder if there's also a cultural sort of rebellion already happening towards AI, even in its infancy, where you're seeing more and more people just, I mean, you see the tweets and stuff, you see more and more just sort of banter about how crappy AI is and how dumb it sounds, um, and people doing the Eminem fake AI songs where it's just become a whole meme now. Um, these kinds of things, I think, represent people who recognize, even without enumerating it, the farcical nature of these supposed technological advancements in society that are really only being manifested as technological advancements for a bunch of rich people who want to stop employing as many measly workers as possible um and it's just it's just one of these things that will cause more and more attention hopefully towards building actual human experiences and representing actual representing actual humans um politically, economically, socially, um, in the face of everything seeming to be turning into robots. Um, and this is, this is what I can hope for, or at least what I can work to, or talk to, talk about to see, you know, 
whatever the phrase is that I'm looking for. It's quite early. Um, but I, I really am fascinated by the piece, Jessica, and I thank you for bringing that forward. Um, hopefully, the, I don't know if I, I'm cutting you off before you have anything left to say or, uh, you know. I, I wanted to add something because um, <clears throat> I think another path to, like, uh, actual humans being able to monetize of AI art, AI art or whatever um, is that from my understanding for it to work it, AI needs like a kind of bank of existing whatever right needs to be existing music for it to pull from existing um, articles for it to pull from to make um, its own articles and things like that so I think obviously right now a lot of those things are being pulled from without the consent of the original artists and if Possibly there was some AI bank made of consenting artists who got a healthy percentage of whatever that AI music art articles are going to be used for. That's a possible way for actual artists to gain money off AI art uh, in some kind of weird passive income way. Um, but I don't know. Maybe at that point you just hire an actual artist because <laughs> you have to pay for it anyway. So I don't know. Have either yeah, of you horror. ever? Have either of you ever made a song and then in or ingested a song into a distribution platform? Yeah. Okay, Ryan. So there's companies like TuneCore, DistroKid, CD Baby, and functionally sure, sure, distribution sure. companies take a song and they help it get on streaming services and social media platforms, right? So I made a song. How do I get it on Instagram and Spotify? And then there's these companies in the middle. I think the largest joke in the world is that AI is figuring out cultural appropriation for composition without humans. But these websites are like geriatric from the 1920s, barely function, and have categories like world music, if you're brown. Um, and that's only just begun to change. And so from both an economics and serving market standpoint, figure out efficiencies for that where you already know there's hundreds of thousands of millions of people using it around the world that need this software to be better um, and let them contribute to how they want to be categorized and utilized or put the Otis on the streaming services to have direct to streaming service applications and databases so things don't have to be gate kept. But I, I'm intrigued by the solution you proposed. I think there's something cool about what if the way you can independently, if I could independently distribute a song to Instagram or Spotify, what if I can independently submit a song to Google Music Labs and if anybody licenses the beat, the composition, the lyrics, or the words of the song, or if the software licenses it when it's creating an original composition for somebody else, there's a payout associated with that. Because then that would be kind of cool. It would also give them data. But nonetheless, here we are in a world of inefficient efficiencies for the wrong people. Yeah, and all of our data is in the ether somewhere being collected. It's great, and we love it. This is a piece called Google AI Tool Creates Music from Written Descriptions by Brian Lin for FOA Learning English. Thank you so much for bringing that forward, Jashima. We're going to move forward to a Pitchfork piece, a profile called Japanese Breakfast is Working the Pain Away by Clint Moreland, photography by Bobby Doherty. This is Ryan's piece, so Ryan, feel free to introduce us and talk about what you are interested in in this piece. Yeah, sure. Um, first of all, I want to apologize to Mickey, because <laughs> he'll be mad I didn't bring this on an episode with him. Um, <clears throat> so I just got done reading Michelle Zorna's book, Crying in H-Mart. It was like a memoir surrounded around the um, passing of the mother. And... I love her music and um, having just finished that book and having spent so much time with her music, it builds this weird kind of parasocial relationship, right? You read someone's memoir of them detailing one of the most excruciatingly emotional periods of their life and you make the mistake of thinking that you know them <laughs> and you listen to their music, which is just such a pure expression of emotion and again, you trick yourself into thinking that you know them. 
And then you read a profile from Pitchfork written by Quinn Moreland and you see this person through someone else's eyes other than their own. For the first time, you're not reading their writing, you're not listening to their expression. You're looking at this person through another person's eyes and you realise, I don't know them. (laughs) Right? It breaks you out of that spell. And I found that experience really fascinating from this. Um, You know, being able to view someone an artist from outside of their own orbit. Um, Yeah, really fascinating. I've been wrapped so much in her words and reading someone else's words about her kind of broke me free from that, which was such a a very strange experience. And it got me thinking about, like, what the purpose of a profile is because um, from my, like, standpoint, if I was to write a profile on someone, I'd do my best to kind of give an objective view of who this person is as much as possible. Um, Because that's the way I process the idea of a profile. When I read other people's profiles and I analyse them, I think about how they're able to um, provide context for this person. Similar to what we talked about last episode of all all three profiles we discussed last time. That's kind of the way I looked at them. But this experience kind of changed my mind into thinking, like, maybe the purpose of a profile is to explain, is to simply give an impression of how you see a person rather than trying to be completely objective. And I think the piece actually does both really, really, really well because we do get a lot of Zorna's voice in there. We got get bandmates' voice and people who know her. But we also get Quinn's voice and Quinn's kind of documentation of being around Zorna. Um, <clears throat> so yeah. A lot of jumble there, but um, yeah, Jasmine, what do you think of the piece? And what do you think of like that idea about profiles? I think there's occasionally pieces that restore my faith in certain types of journalism, and this was one of them. For the reason that you pointed out, I think that a profile's two functions, in my opinion, whether that's actually the function of the role of writing a profile, is to teach me something about the artist or subject being profiled and to teach me about the writer's experience of observing that individual. And so inherently, a profile for me means I'm signing up not just to learn about the subject, but also because I value the take or the observation of the person writing it and how they feel about the person or thing. And I think that there's something really special returning in the world, maybe, in some ways, or maybe it never left, I don't know. But social media and other platforms have given artists control of their own narrative, which I think was really important because they were often in environments where someone else, through hosting, through interviews, through staged PR, were forming their narrative. But I think this side is equally as important to exist. We're communal creatures consuming art and sharing art and consuming it and sharing it. And so the way someone else experiences you matters because we're multi-layered human beings. And so while you read her book and you know her their music, you just said that after reading this, it's like a whole different part of them that you wouldn't have known. And that's because people are multifaceted and how we experience each other is different. And I thought it was beautifully written. It made me really happy. Um, and I think there was so much joy in the way that this piece was written by Quinn. And I really felt like I was in the museum with them. And I was like, in some ways, this is the most 2023 piece of like, we're in a museum with vulvas, but we're also talking about empathy and trauma healing and grief. But also, here's what's happening sonically. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I think that that's... Yeah, Eddie, go on. yeah you got it. Uh, yeah. Sorry. No, no, I was going to say, go ahead, Eddie. Ah, thank you, Ryan. Um, yeah, yeah, it's 100%. Uh, I think it's an astute observation. It's very 2023. Um, talking about trauma in general and intergenerational trauma and immigrant families, definitely like high score on the 2023 social discourse points board. Um, but what I think is also uh, really evident here and hearing both of you talk about it and my own reflections on the piece, which I also think it's really good, um, is really interesting when you compare it with the last piece we just talked about because I think that there's clearly um, an interruption there or, or clearly something um, quite st- sticking out about how different it is to have something that is you know objective and professional 
and that is efficiently achieving a task and then something that is a reflection of a human experience. Um, and there's ultimately nothing that, for instance, a, an AI machine can do to write a piece that presents a personal experience and narrative about what you experienced hanging out with a person, knowing about them, knowing about certain things from your own perspective of the world and understandings. And these are the things that we love about pieces. These are the things that we love about listening to podcasts and hearing two people just talk, um, for those of us who like podcasts, and talk and uh, experience, ex explain our own experiences of the world and sort of interact in funny little ways. It's the thing that people enjoy about music uh, and somebody like Japanese Breakfast um, who will continuously put forward extremely personal narratives or even not extremely personal narratives through these different reflections of her interests in, in, in different sonic palettes and, and different um, perspectives and different parts of, you know, her worldview and maturing and through the music, right? These are human experiences. These are the things that we care about because we're social animals, right? We're social and we want to understand other people and some part of us, we, we have some desire to interact with them, although sometimes we like to just stay home and cover ourselves in blankets as well. And so for us to understand what it really means to write well, uh, I think AI has ironically offered us um, an interesting sort of um, an interesting sort of con contrast that, that really helps us recognize what is important to us when it comes to the arts, when it comes to writing, which is that we want that humanity. We want that human perspective. And even something like Pitchfork, like understanding a publication and what kind of writing they put forward and what kind of voice they have and what kind of company they are. These are the things that make a narrative. It's like, ah, Pitchfork released this article. Oh, which writer? It's this writer. Oh, it was about this person. Oh, it was from this time. You know, there's so many different contextual clues. They give us all these insights into, these, into this human experience so that if one day, 20 years from now, somebody was writing about indie music and the state of it in the mid-2020s, they would be looking at pieces like this and building this narrative about, oh, this is what people were doing. Like, this is how humans looked at each other. They were all talking about trauma for some reason. They were looking at vaginas. Um, they were laughing in museums. They were doing all these different really personal things and at the same time having this ironic detachment uh, it's these kinds of things that are actually important to us and I, I hope that these lessons are sort of being learned in very uh, material ways for people as they look at this Ryan when you look at this piece um, what does it uh, sort of inspire in you and, and what are your sort of final takeaways from the piece even too since you, you brought it forward um, honestly what I found most impressive, what inspired me the most is that, you know, as journalists, a lot of us, we read an article and we put ourselves in the shoes of the writer and think, oh, could I have actually done this? You know, could I have written this piece? Do I have the skill to do what they did in this piece? Especially pieces that, like, are really great. You're like, could I ever even do something that good? Um, and the thing that really blew me away with this one is just how much material Quinn had to pull from to create the narrative she wanted to create. She had three albums under the name Japanese Breakfast as well as Zorna's other work. She had her actual conversation on the day of Japanese Breakfast. She had the little things as a journalist you have to notice about a person that isn't just the words they're saying to you, but their actions and just, yeah, the way they, they act in front of you. And then you have an entire memoir from this person to pull from as well. So you have all that material, all those primary and secondary resources, and you have to pull them all together in order to create a profile that is true to your experience with this person, that's true to the narrative you want to tell about this person, but also informs the reader that this person has a book coming out and an album coming out that are both really good and you should go read and listen to them. Um... So the, the it's a miracle the piece is as short as it is, that this could have been a book. <laughs> like, genuinely, there's so much material to pull from. I don't know how Quinn didn't just get overwhelmed and cry under the bunch of blankets like I would have done. Like, it's, it's a really impressive feat from that uh, point of view, in my opinion. Excellent. Joshma, do you ever feel like going under the sheets and crying before doing a piece, and why? <laughs> Always. Um, I think that this is probably one of 
the very few pieces I've read where I see so much of my own life in the way someone else is describing theirs. And that's because I think I love the process. So I've never really bought into the world we live in that shows people the highlight reels or the what have you, because often the process or the ugly things, the hard things are where incredible music and art is made and sort of how it was consumed in a period of time without needing to explicitly be like, this art collection is about trauma. You would just look at it and be like, ah, the trauma, I have that too. Um, but I think that there's there's a series of themes in the piece that reoccur for me, whether it's her talking about Jubilee in the video chat after having met each other or when they refer to her mom's death and what that was like and needing to move back home and take care of her or her career as an artist where it took several years, different bands, moving in with her husband in Brooklyn and taking an advertising job. I think this is the first time in a very long time I've read something where it's truly showing you how much occurred in so many different parts of someone's lives at the same time before the thing that we all see and consume in the form of songs and books today and how relentless you have to be in that pursuit because it's decades of your life of being like, oh, this didn't work, but I'm going to keep going. This didn't work, but I'm going to keep going. And I think sometimes we don't get a lot of that in the form of a written piece that allows us the time as readers and listeners to consume it and unpack it in the way that we might need to. I think when things are in video or in short form, sometimes it's really hard, at least for me, to process what the person's telling me. Everyone's like, ah, I want to share that this wasn't hard and I moved away and it took seven years. And when you hear that on a video, it's like, okay, yeah, it took seven years, makes sense. When you read somebody else describing that someone else had to move home and learn how to make Korean dishes that were okay for her mom's medical condition and her diet and do that while still being like, ah, how do I make music? That written meant something for me. Yeah, that's an absolutely uh, an astute observation and an astounding observation. It really is the kind of thing that makes you, uh, you know, it, it brings you a smile on your face and reminds you how cool art can be. So that is Japanese Breakfast is Working the Pain Away from Pitchfork, written by Quinn Moreland with photography by Bobby Doherty. Really good piece. And we're gonna finish with my piece. I brought this one to the table. I didn't write it, but I brought it to the table. It's actually written by Marcus Shorter for Consequence of Sound. And it's called Lil Yachty's Let's Start Here and the Case for Reinvention. So surely the audience will be somewhat familiar with the reality, with the ongoing situation of Lil Yachty's psychedelic phase, his psychedelic rock um, interest, and this new album that sees him exploring these different sounds. It's become a bit of a conversation, a bit of a discourse topic for a couple of different things within the music listening community. Namely that a lot of people felt pleasantly surprised by the album and found it to be quite good. But there's also other conversations about what it means when rappers decide that they are artists with a capital A and quotation marks around it and, and wants to do other types of music and what it means when artists try different types of music in 2023 and receive all types of different responses for it. Is it as, as shocking as it used to be? Is it even more shocking depending on who it is? So I think we'll start with Ryan. Um, I'd love to hear what your thoughts on the piece were and sort of what your thoughts on the discourse are because I've seen some different takes and I'm not sure what you're seeing. Uh, yeah, I've seen quite a bit particularly in our central source group chat on Twitter, where uh, Mickey has been laying into this album. I think, unless it's Brandon, one of the white guys. <laughs> one of the white we guys never remember which white guy is which, it's true. Yeah, they're interchangeable. You know, it's, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, love you both. Um, no, he doesn't. No, but... <laughs> uh, we'll leave that there. So, um, yeah, I've been mostly seeing negative stuff about Lil Yachty and some really well-written negative stuff about Lil Yachty. Um, and this is a really well-written positive spin on it, which I haven't really had a lot of, and it was a quite refreshing um, idea to bring to the table. 
And yeah, in isolation, there is nothing wrong with reinvention. Actually, reinvention is enriching and freeing for so many of us who feel like we are in a box. Um, I don't know about you guys, but whenever like I feel like I've done something too many times, I feel an urge to just do something completely different. Like if I write too many articles about a particular type of artist, I there's a thing inside me that's like, oh, I can't, I can't. I need to do something else. I need to quickly put something out that shows that I don't just do this one thing. 100%. Yeah, and I think that anxiety of being boxed in is really relatable and something that um, Lil Yachty has... Lil Yachty! Completely derailed in the podcast. I don't know how I can come back from this. What's Lil Yachty doing? <laughs> I don't know, I forgot. Um uh, the artist has um, what was I talking about? I was talking about the anxiety being boxed in. And yeah, that's like a very present thing and a very human thing, a very relatable thing. And I think this kind of history that Marcus charts from like showing how different artists in hip hop have branched out and how real or fake those things are, whether you're just saying you're pivoting to rock music or if you're actually making rock music and the kind of shades to um the kind of shades to kind of the shades to reinvention but all of them kind of stem from the same anxiety of like i don't want to be just known for this one thing whether i'm just doing this as a a a new a fresh uh coat of paint as just like an aesthetic thing or i'm genuinely shifting directions i just just so desperately don't want to be known for this one thing that I, i i just need to change something and i found a lot of sympathy with the artist in question from um, that, <laughs> from, yeah, from reading this piece. Yeah, I think uh, it's definitely a worthy thing to feel some level of, of connection with. Joshua, do you also sort of resonate with that feeling of, of reinvention and experimentation as well? And do you think perhaps, um, you know, people are being too harsh on Lil Yachty? Um, growing up, my brother had a drum kit and his drum teacher's name was Glenn. And I thought Glenn was very hot. Glenn was a tall white man who wore way too much gel in his hair and graphic punk rock band t-shirts and had, I, I, I was very young, I was aged. So did he have gauges or did I add that memory? I'm unsure, but let's, for the sake of the podcast, assume he had gauges. Um, the environment we grew up in during that phase of my life would have never exposed me to hard rock music, to emo guilt trap music, to things like Papa Roach and Breaking Benjamin. And then when we moved to Arizona and I lived in a very different socioeconomic environment than I used to and was around a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds, suddenly music that when I lived in New York was something that mostly white people listened to and I didn't really know where they found it or got it was something that because I was only around white people, I had started listening to because they listened to it. And suddenly in those songs about different types of things happening in life, I found a lot of myself understanding that, of liking a little bit of the screamo, of becoming the kid that wore the band t-shirts and yeah, just super punk rocky, angry, angsty and It got me thinking about how so much of the art forms that we're exposed to are gatekept based on the color of our skin and where we grow up like anything else is in the world. But because of social media and the internet in the last decade of my life, I've been able to lean into so many different things and many of them tie to different experiences I had growing up. And I think the authenticity of that for artists is often debated. Are you code switching and jumping into another genre or do you really feel this thing? And I think... Unless we're spending all the time in the world researching each of these different genres and becoming experts in it and living with it, then who are we to tell someone else that they also can't be like, ah, I love music. I've shown you I'm a musician. This is a medium that speaks to me and the style and this 
way of creating is something I want to explore. Can you grant me that? Because maybe I'm also trying to bring my audience into something that matters to me. And I think often we're all victims of treating different as bad. And it's just, in my opinion, not the, not bad. It's just different. And when someone that we know to do something does something other than that thing, then we're like, ah, what is this? Are you leaving us? Where is this coming from? You're mainstream now. I hate this. And I think that's a lot of the discourse happening online. And however valid or not, I don't know. Everyone's entitled to being equally inspired by the little Waynes as they are the Glens of the world and being able to explore that way. Do I sometimes sing Sweet Home Alabama in a country accent and send my friends voice notes? Yes, I do. And so leave them alone. Leave them alone. Okay. Okay. So there's, there's a stance and uh, there's also a, a note on Sweet, no, uh, Sweet Home Alabama, which we will keep filed here at the Central Sauce offices. Um, there's, yeah, I think that there's, there's a, there's a very large spectrum to the discourse where it's a bit hard to sort of pinpoint even too, cause like there's different types of criticisms and there's different types of praises. And some of those praises feel a little bit like shallow and some of those criticisms feel a little bit shallow. So Ryan, I would love to hear for you, like what are the main criticisms that you're hearing about Yai and where do you think, um, you know, there's there's some stuff that you might that you understand, and where do you think there's some stuff that might be unfair? Um, well, I think a lot of it stemmed from it was it might have been a listening party or a concert or something, where he said uh, something on the lines of "I want to be considered as an artist," like you mentioned earlier, right? And I think a lot of backlash about. Hmm, Maybe that's unfair to say. The backlash about the music stems from that comment. <clears throat> but understandably, there's, that, there's backlash to that comment because with that becomes this implicit thing where we can't consider rap as artistry for whatever reason. Is that yeah? Is that the artist's fault? Or is that just the general industry and American racism's fault? Is it both there's a bigger conversation to be had there. But I think there's definite warranted criticism for that kind of attitude. Um, on the other hand, I've just heard straight up, you know, the music isn't great for a lot of people. Uh, Alphonse Pierre did a really great piece in Pitchfork, a really great review about the album, um, where he said something on the lines of it feels like an album pining to be on a, a wall of vinyl alongside like Tyler the Creator's Eagle and Tame Impala's Currents in like college dorm rooms or whatever. Which um, was a very funny way of putting it, but isn't a million miles away. Um, so yeah, like a lot of it is opinion based, which obviously is completely valid. But it's difficult to pass, like, how much of that is just because genuinely the sound is not connecting with people or because of the comments he made about it, which sours your opinion of the entire thing, or because you're just, you're boxing him in and you think, he should do the one thing that I know him to do. Why isn't he doing Poland 30 times on the album, you know? Right. Well, I think that there's an interesting uh, dynamic there that you sort of bring up. And Justin, I'd love to hear your thoughts sort of on this when, uh, from the perspective of uh, how you work with artists because clearly there's um, a lot of what draws criticism to an artist, whether it's for this type of thing or just in general, is where there's a seeming pining for a type of reception when you make a type of music more so than a desire to make a type of music. Right. So where is there the, uh, you know, where is there a situation sort of sometimes where an artist is making a type of music because he knows, well, this is going to make me look cooler as a, or more respectable as an artist or going to get this kind of fan base in. And so I want to try to do that versus like I just like psych rock. And so for you, Joshua, when you work with artists, um, how do you sort of negotiate the process of thinking about an audience and thinking about sort of bringing a type of perception home versus this is what the artist is genuinely wanting to do um, or coming from a genuine sort of place. How sort of thick is that line? If we did things 
with any of our artists or they did things that were to get a reaction, then we wouldn't be in the financial situations we're all in and things would look a lot differently in life. Um, so I think I'm fortunate to work with artists that don't really ever want to do something just for the sake of how it'll be received. That said, the debate of how things that are genuine to them will be received based on the state of the world is a conversation we have often. Um, and an example I can give is, we could be working with a community that we're all a part of ethnically or in the same city as, or if we, the same gender identities, if that's something someone subscribes to. And so even within that, there's human difference, right? We're all different people. And so a song that might be about one of the artist's lives that in theory, according to the rest of the world, I should relate to because of those markers or someone else should relate to and it should feel authentic. It's not because their life is different from my life and I'm a different person than they are. And so when they release it, there is always that question of, will the audiences that we're a part of and interacting with receive this as an authentic project because it is authentic to that person, but it may not be authentic to their experiences of those mutual markers. And that debate happens often. And so I, I would turn the question to you both. In the piece, Marcus Shorter says, experimentation just for the sake of it is whack. And I'm curious on maybe separate from Loliati or in relation to, is experimentation for the sake of experimentation whack? I don't think anything is whack as such. Like, I don't think anything is just like, this is 100% every time whack. Because sometimes artists, you know, it just depends on the mind frame of the artist. There are some artists that are just certain types of people that love to experiment and don't even necessarily think about what the experimentation is as much as they're just having fun making stuff. And then it comes out and everybody's like, wow, this is great. Um, the intentionality, I think, is sometimes we, something we pour over. Like, he was really trying to go for this. It was, an eight, it was a 1981 Michigan um, white uh, suburban mixed with 2007 Mexican uh, tropical. And it's like, well, maybe he just thought of the thing. And then he was like, this is cool. And then made it. And usually that's where the cool stuff comes from, in my opinion. So I think there's a point to it. There's a merit to the point in the sense that some people experiment and think that there's all this merit to it because it's an experiment. It's like, oh, I went out of the box on this one. Isn't that so cool? And it's like, well, if it sucks, then no, it's not really cool. Um, if it's bad or if it's not inspiring or if it's, you know, God forbid, something that comes from some bad intentions like of, of trying to appeal in a very vague and, 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 and lowest common denominator um, uncool way or, or insulting way, then yeah, then people are going to be critical of it and you don't get to just be like, well, I was, I was, I was trying something different. People just criticize me for trying something different because it's like, well, you put it out there and you don't get points just for effort. You have to re recognize that there's a difference between intention and impact. And so pouring over intention a bit too much is, is, is a bit, you know, it's, it's very invigorating and interesting, but ultimately the, 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 the question becomes, well, what is the music? What is it actually doing? What's the impact? Um, Ryan, what are your thoughts? Yeah, yeah, it's difficult, difficult to disagree, disagree there. Um, experimentation for the sake of experimentation. Um, I don't think it's whack, actually. I think it's pretty cool. <laughs> I think it's pretty cool to just say, I've been doing this thing for a lot, long time, I just want to do something different for the sake of it. Because cool stuff can come from that, and if it turns out bad, then eh, who cares? Right. Um, unless, like, your, your entire finance situation is leveraged on it, then don't do that. But um, as long as, like is kind of a free hit and you're like you know what i might as well just try and do something different here and see if it comes off if that's what we mean by experimentation for experimentation's sake then that's cool and more people should do it i think uh when they get the chance um i think um there's a fear factor that comes with that of like yeah taking a big swing if it comes off, then, like, you're a genius, right? But if it doesn't, everyone's going to be like, what is wrong with you? Just do the thing that you're good at. Um, I guess the artist in question, because I'm not saying it again. I'm not saying his name again. Because um, <laughs> I will go into a laughing fit. Um, I think he 
did have a lot leveraging on it though and it was experimentation for experimentation's sake from what like what I've seen and heard him say it was experimentation in order to feel artistically free like there was a goal to it you know yeah um yeah 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 i mean we could always like we could spend a lot of time pouring over like what experimentation for experimentation's sake actually is and like where there becomes that that connotation and how fair it is but i do think it would be it would be best if we left it there i do think it would be best if we sort of wrapped up because charlie's got a lot to edit you know um and he's a busy guy but also i think we had some really excellent conversations there um where we tied in three different sort of conversations and stories that were about the human experience with music and what's at play what's being threatened potentially with technological advancements and what we recognize has to stay and what we recognize perhaps might be blooming even more um, in the face of these technological changes so that last piece was by marcus shorter for consequence of sound called little yachty's let's start here in the case for reinvention before that we talked about japanese breakfast in the piece japanese breakfast is working the pain away for pitchfork by quinn by quinn moreland and then our first piece was brought in by Jeshma. Um, Google AI tool creates music from written descriptions. That was for FOA Learning English. And that was by Brian Lin. So thank you all for bringing, it, uh, bringing in some great stories and some great open-hearted talks about tutors and white people. And thank you all for listening. Uh, it's been a blast, and we love hearing from you. So make sure that you give us your... Uh, you know rating which would be you know the best rating possible of course and a review make sure you share if you listen to this and you liked it and thank you so much for listening thanks for listening guys thanks for listening This episode of The Social Source featured Ryan Gore, Elliot Saint, and Joshua Rivera of The Central Source Creative Collective. The episode is edited by me, Charlie Taylor, of the Fifth End Podcast Network. Music for the show is fucked up by Barsity. Thanks to Chill Music for a bit to use. This has been Central Source and a Fifth End Podcast Network production. Links to Barsity, Chill Music, Central Source Development, and content on the episode can all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time as we continue our search for Source.